You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. It is a joy to see you this morning. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, open it up to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Now, my name is Kyle. I think I know most of you in here, although a number of you have joined the church over the last, you know, five, six, seven years since our family has been back in Southeast Asia. My wife, Jamie, uh, our eldest son and I used to be members of this church. The other three kids hadn't been baptized yet, so they weren't members of the church at that time. Uh, But we used to be a part of this church. My wife, in fact, used to serve on the children's ministry on staff here at First Baptist. And so we are absolutely very, very, very thankful for this church. Currently, we live in Southeast Asia, where I serve as an elder at Gospel City Church. Our family is involved in a number of ministries, and I teach as a seminary professor at a number of regional seminaries. But we are able to do what we do because of churches like First Baptist. First and foremost, we're able to do what we do because of First Baptist. You are our home church. You are our sending church But because of the gifts that you give through the cooperative program and through the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, we are able to serve in Southeast Asia as your representatives there serving among the peoples where we serve. And so we are incredibly, incredibly thankful for this church. Everything that we are able to do, our car Our house rent, our kids' education is because of you and churches like you. So we're very thankful. I just want to say that first and foremost. Now we are going to continue our sermon this morning through the Psalms. We're going to continue our series through the Psalms. We are going to look at Psalm 110. It is a very powerful Psalm, and it's all about Jesus. Now, I could dance around this fact. I could beat around the bush. I could, you know, talk about the historical context of Psalm 110, and I could build a case from biblical theology to show that it's about Jesus, and I'm going to do some of that. But there's no use in hiding the fact up front that this Psalm is about Jesus. And that's what I want us to see this morning. I want us to rejoice in Jesus because of a prophecy that King David made about Jesus some 1,000 years before Jesus even came. I want us to rejoice because we learn from this psalm that Jesus is both our perfect king and our faithful priest. Now, the New Testament makes this interpretation definite. You may wonder, if you were to look at the New Testament, you may wonder, what is the most quoted passage in the Old Testament? Maybe you would think of creation. Creation is really important. Maybe you would think of the Exodus. The Exodus is really important. Maybe there's a verse from the book of Exodus. Maybe you would think, if you were thinking about the Psalms, about Psalm 1, which Pastor Jay so 
preached so well last week. But if you look at the New Testament, the most quoted passage in the entire New Testament is Psalm 110. If I were to read every verse from the New Testament that quotes Psalm 110 or alludes to Psalm 110, it would take me more than five minutes. I tried it. I timed it. I'm a quick speaker, and it still took more than five minutes. It's quoted directly in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's quoted directly in the book of Acts and in the book of Hebrews multiple times. Other passages in the New Testament allude to Psalm 110, and they all teach that Psalm 110 is about Jesus. The Apostle Peter, while preaching at Pentecost, said that King David wrote Psalm 110. And after quoting Psalm 110, verse 1, Peter said, quote, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. In other words, Peter knew that Psalm 110 was speaking about Jesus. The author of Hebrews says that Psalm 110 teaches that Jesus is both king and priest. Even Jesus himself, whenever he was asked in Mark 14, verse 62, if he was the Messiah, he said, I am. And previously, in Mark chapter 12, he had said that Psalm 110 is about the Messiah. So, Jesus said Psalm 110 is about the Messiah, and Jesus said that he is the Messiah. So even Jesus says this psalm is about himself. So there's no use wasting our time this morning going into various interpretations or explanations about what this psalm is about. This psalm is about our Lord Jesus Christ because the rest of the Bible teaches that it's about Jesus. And the church has always proclaimed that Psalm 110 is about Jesus. Augustine, preaching in the fourth century, said, quote, this psalm is one of those promises Surely and openly prophesying our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, so that we are utterly unable to doubt that Jesus is announced in this psalm. A thousand years after Augustine, John Calvin said, quote, The psalm itself would admit of no other interpretation than that it is about Jesus. Psalm 110 is about Jesus, so we're going to look at it as a prophecy about Jesus. And before we move on, can we just stop and say that it is amazing that God would so orchestrate things so that a prophecy that was made a thousand years before Jesus comes to fulfillment in the time of Jesus so that multiple people, they see Jesus and they say, here's the fulfillment of this psalm. And so that we, 2,000 years later, can look back at God's word. And we can see this example of a prophecy being made and finding its fulfillment a 1,000 years later. And so that we can say God's word is trustworthy. It is reliable. God will fulfill his promises. So this morning... If we look at Psalm 110, open up your Bible, look at it 
you can see usually pretty clearly, depending on the translation that you're looking at, that the psalm is divided into two portions. Verses 1 through to 3 focus on Jesus as Lord and King. Verses 4 through to 7 focus on Jesus as a priest and as a judge. And so what I want us to see this morning is that the psalm teaches that Jesus is the perfect king and the faithful priest for everyone who desires justice and access to God. So let's look together at our passage where we see in verses 1 through to 3 that Jesus is our perfect king. We see here that David prophesies that the Lord will establish and extend the rule of his chosen king. Let me read verses 1 through to 3 to us. A psalm according to David. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Rule over your surrounding enemies. Your people will volunteer on your day of battle. In holy splendor from the womb of the dawn, the dew of your youth belongs to you. And so we see here in these first three verses that King David made a prophetic statement. Now, if you notice, look in your Bibles, this psalm has a superscription. In English Bibles, it's usually written first before verse 1 in italics. In the Hebrew Bible, it's actually part of verse 1. And here it says, a psalm according to David. Now, this Hebrew phrase can mean all sorts of things. It can mean a psalm written by David, a psalm written in the style of David's psalms, or a psalm that is given to David. But for Psalm 110, the rest of the Bible teaches that this is a psalm that was written by David. And the most clear argument that we have for this is that Jesus, in Mark 12, verse 36, says that King David wrote this psalm under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So if Jesus says it, well, then it's true. This psalm was written by King David. And knowing that King David wrote this psalm affects how we will interpret it. Think about the first verse. It says, this is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Look closely at your Bible there. Notice that the first Lord is written in all capital letters. This is because it is God's personal divine name, Yahweh. Most English translations will often translate God's name as the Lord and put it in all capital letters so that we know this is God's personal name, Yahweh. But keep looking at the verse. Notice the Lord says to my Lord. The second time Lord appears, it is not written in all capital letters. The second Lord is not God's personal name, but another title, Adonai. Sometimes Adonai can refer to God, or sometimes it can refer to a human 
lord or a lord of some other kind. But we know that King David wrote this psalm. And since King David wrote this psalm, he is saying that God, the Lord, is speaking to his, King David's, Lord. But who could be King David's Lord? David is God's chosen king, taken from being a shepherd of the flocks and set over God's people, Israel, as their king. They may not be the most powerful nation, but they're certainly the most important nation in God's economy. And so who could King David say is his Lord? But furthermore, notice that these verses recount God's message to David's Lord. He says that he will have victory over the enemies. He says that he will expand this Lord's kingdom, that he will have victory, that an, a volunteer army will come to him. And then it, it ends with these verses that aren't easy for us to understand with references to holy splendor, to the womb of the dawn, the dew of your youth. Scholars suggest that these, these phrases, which sound odd to us in English, are highlighting the strength and the youthfulness of this king and his army. He has energy, he has vigor, he has power. And that's what these are highlighting. Who could this be whom David calls Lord? And so what we see here is that God will establish a kingdom by defeating this chosen king, whom is David's Lord, by defeating his enemies. The imagery of Psalm 110 emphasizes that God is a warrior. He will defeat the king's enemies. He will extend the king's rule over his enemies. He will make the enemies of this king a footstool for him. Look there in verse 1. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This depicts the king's enemies as a resting stool for his feet. Now, they didn't have, you know, recliners, but that's kind of the image. The king is kicked back in his recliner. He has his feet kicked up, not on an ottoman, but on his enemies. The picture is one of his enemies being subdued, defeated so significantly that they can't rise up and do anything against this king. They are just his footstool. But the verse states that this chosen king, whom God will make his enemies a footstool, is sitting at the right hand of God. Notice it says, sit at my right hand in verse 1. In the ancient Middle East, the right hand was the place of honor. If you wanted to show honor to a significant individual, you let them sit at your right hand. But this is more than just sitting at his right hand 
at, for instance, a banquet table. This is sitting at his right hand at his very throne. This is a place of royalty. This is a place of honor. And so whoever this chosen king is, whom we know is Jesus, he is seated at God the Father's right hand. He is transported to God's throne to sit there until all of his enemies are subdued. Brothers and sisters, the Old Testament tells the story of God's broken relationship with humanity. God seeks to restore that relationship with humanity by first choosing an individual, Abraham. God comes into a covenant with Abraham, says that all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. And then he comes into a covenant with a chosen nation, a chosen people, Israel. And he says that he will make Israel into a kingdom of priests. He establishes a covenant with them. And despite this loving covenant, despite this loving relationship, Israel continues to rebel against the Lord. So God chooses a king, King David, whom he sets in place over his chosen nation, Israel. And in this covenant with King David, he, he says that David will be his representative. He will represent the nation to God. But King David, King Solomon, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, every other king of Israel's history, whether a king over Israel or a king over Judah, they rebelled against God. The individuals of the nation of Israel and the kings of Israel and Judah were every bit as rebellious against God as our ancestors, Adam and Eve. But despite this persistent love from God and this persistent rebellion from God's people, we keep hearing promises that are made. Beginning in Genesis, you start to hear promises of a king who would come. This king would rule over God's people righteously. He would uphold and establish God's justice in a way that he's fully a human king, but in a way that no human could really uphold God's justice. He would represent God's love and his justice. And so these promises look forward to this king, and Psalm 110 is one of those promises. King David is looking forward to a king who is his Lord. He's looking forward to a king whose kingdom will be expanded who will rule not only over Israel, but over the nations around Israel who were enemies of Israel at that time, and whom the Lord will give absolute authority to. This king will be victorious. This psalm looks directly to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But as we read this, and we think about this king, we must remember that Jesus is no earthly king. 
I live in a country in Southeast Asia that has a king. Our country in Southeast Asia is also part of the Commonwealth of Nations, which allies itself with King Charles III of the United Kingdom. A few weeks ago, my wife, my eldest son, and I were in the United Kingdom, and I can assure you that the United Kingdom, England, still is a monarchy. They love the royals. They love King Charles III. His picture is everywhere, on like cups and shirts and everything. His Majesty King Charles III. But here in the U.S., praise God, we declared our independence from that British throne some 250 years ago. According to the Declaration of Independence, we rejected King George III for his, quote, repeated injuries and usurpations. You didn't know you were going to hear that word today, right? Usurpations. Quoting the Declaration of Independence, they, we rejected King George III because he had established a, quote, absolute tyranny, end quote, over the states. We wanted to create a more perfect union. And so we rejected the British king. But some of the founders, probably most notably Alexander Hamilton, were not opposed to having a king. Hamilton, in fact, wanted George Washington to become the king of America and for his children to become the future kings of America. But whether we're talking about Hamilton or any of the other founders, one thing is absolutely clear. They all rejected bad kings. And they all were in agreement that you're not going to find an earthly king who could fulfill the requirements of a good king and bring about a righteous rule. Because kings are humans. But let's be honest. I'll be honest with you. This is the way I feel all the time. Even though we Americans are not monarchists, we can kind of see the appeal. How many of us get frustrated whenever we read the news about Washington, about some politician who is a bad politician, who has brought forward some bad policy that is never going to get passed anyways, that they're just bringing it forward so that they can get on whatever their chosen you know, political network is for a soundbite? How many of us have become frustrated because leaders in Washington talk a big game but never actually do anything? How many of us, if we're honest, would vote for someone who could just cut through all the red tape and just get things done that we know would be good? And so we can at least see the appeal of a good king that could just do the things that need to be done. But Psalm 110 shows us that we have a good king. No matter who is in charge in Washington, no matter if it's this party or that party that both talk a big game and don't do anything, we have a king. And our king is the Lord Jesus Christ. He rules from God's throne. He has a higher authority than the king of my country, the king of England, or whoever is in power in Washington. And we know him. We know Jesus. 
We love Jesus. We know God the Father. We love God the Father. We can trust that this good, loving, and perfect king will uphold true justice and yet also show mercy whenever possible. So instead of placing our hope in earthly kings and earthly kingdoms, Psalm 110 teaches us that there's a greater king even than the king of Israel, a greater king who is our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect king and Lord whom we all desire. And we should long for the expansion of his reign and his kingdom because he alone is the perfect king. But Psalm 110 says that Jesus is more than even a perfect king. Verses four through to seven show us that Jesus is the faithful priest. David continues to prophesy, and he says that Jesus is both an eternal priest and a righteous judge. Let me read verses four through to seven to us. The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest forever according to the pattern of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his anger. He will judge the nations heaping up corpses. He will crush leaders over the entire world. He will drink from the brook by the road. Therefore, he will lift up his head. In the Lord's second declaration here, he announces that the perfect king is also a priest forever. Now in Israel, the prophets, the priests, and the kings were all separate offices. Even though their duties sometimes overlap, King David sometimes did priestly things, the priests sometimes proclaimed God's word like a prophet, and so on and so forth. But their offices were separate. So what does it mean to be a priest after the pattern of Melchizedek. To understand this phrase, we need to understand some basic facts about Israel's priests. The Israelite priests all came from the tribe of Levi. In fact, the priests all came not just from the tribe of Levi, but they were all descendants of Aaron, who was the brother of Moses. And so if you were born into Aaron's family, you became a priest or you became part of the priestly family. But the royal priesthood mentioned in Psalm 110 is not modeled after Aaron's family. It's modeled after the pattern of Melchizedek. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us much about Melchizedek. He's mentioned in Genesis 14, and every other time he's mentioned, it's an allusion to his priesthood. Now, I need to say lots of speculation has been made about who Melchizedek is in Genesis 14, but those speculations aren't relevant to our passage today. What's relevant to our passage is that in Genesis 14, Melchizedek is described as both a king and a priest, furthermore, a king who reigned over Jerusalem. 
Genesis 14, verse 18, calls Melchizedek the king of Salem, which is a former name of Jerusalem, and calls him a priest of El Elyon, which is an ancient name for God Most High. Thus, he rules over Jerusalem as a king, but is also a priest of God Most High. This is why Melchizedek, and not Aaron, provides a pattern for God's Messiah. He is a priestly king who rules over Jerusalem. Psalm 110 shows us that Jesus is a priestly king who will rule over Jerusalem and all the nations. He is not a king like the pagan kings who only represent power, but he's also a priest who can mediate between God and humans. Notice that it says that the Lord is at the right hand in this image. Now, in verse 5, the Lord, the word that is used there for Lord, is actually a third term. Uh, There's a slightly different spelling from the second term, which lets us know that this is referring to God. God is the one who brings about this victory. He is the one who will judge. He is the one who will do all of the things that need to be done. Through his Messiah, he brings his wrath against the nations and their kings. This depicts God judging the world through Jesus and establishing absolute justice on the day of ultimate justice. Now, if you look at verse 7 in your Bible, the psalm ends with a depiction of the king drinking water from a brook and lifting his head. Old Testament scholars explain that these are common depictions of a victorious king. The battle is over. There's no more fighting. He's refreshing himself from the water. He lifts his head. He doesn't have his head hung in shame, but he lifts his head victorious. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the faithful priest and the ultimate judge. In the Old Testament, the priests served many functions. They would bring people's issues before the Lord to seek an answer. They would bring offerings and sacrifices to the Lord. They would atone for sin before the Lord. They were the people's representative before God. But they were also often God's representative to the common people. They declared the Lord's forgiveness. They issued the Lord's blessing. The priests are the ones who would teach God's people God's laws. The priests were the mediators who provided access to God for the common people. The priest was the mediator between God and humans. And the New Testament teaches over and over again that Jesus is the faithful priest. We've already seen that Jesus is the perfect king, but this passage shows that that Melchizedek sets the pattern for a priestly king. The New Testament teaches that Jesus is a king and a priest, that our Lord Jesus Christ, he lived a perfect life. 
He died for sinners. He rose from the dead to defeat both sin and death. And then he ascended to God's throne where he now reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. And he alone, because of these things, is able to serve as our faithful priest. 1 Timothy 1 verses 5 and 6 say that There is one God and there is one mediator between God and humanity, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. We also know that our Lord Jesus serves as the perfect judge. Jesus alone, as the divine Son of God, knows and can uphold God's justice according to God's character. Jesus alone, as fully human, can understand our struggle as humans and can show us abundant mercy. The Baptist faith and message accurately summarizes the theology of Psalm 110 when it says that Jesus, quote, is now exalted at the right hand of God where he is the one mediator, fully God, fully man, in whose person is effected the reconciliation between God and man. He will return in power and glory to judge the world and to consummate his redemptive mission, end quote. That's what Psalm 110 teaches. Jesus is our perfect Lord, King, Priest, and Judge. And these verses apply to us today because we all long for a priest who will mediate our lives before God. I live in a nation where it's not uncommon to see or to hear people talk about a priest. I live in a city where there are many Hindu, Buddhist, and Sikh temples. It's not uncommon for business executives to visit the temple to meet with a priest to make an offering before, you know, purchasing a new company or signing a major business deal. It's not uncommon that they will seek forgiveness from the priest whenever they want their business to succeed. It's not uncommon for couples as they are about to get married to go to one of these priests to seek blessing. These priests promise access to God. They promise healing, reconciliation, and blessing, but they cannot give it. The reason they cannot is they are offering empty promises and false hopes because they're only giving access to their gods, to their idols, who are infinitely less than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They're just giving access to false ideas through these human priests. Here in America, it's less common to see a priest. Many of you know I'm from Plano. Uh, That's where I went to high school. And so down in Plano, you might occasionally see a Hindu or a Buddhist priest, but not often. Whenever we, in North Texas, whenever we hear the word priest, we usually think of a Catholic priest. But even here in Grayson County, Less than 5% of people call themselves Catholic, and less than 1% of people ever darken the door of a Catholic church. But the lack of 
Familiarity with priests does not mean that people don't seek a priest. North Texans are more likely to look to other means for healing, reconciliation, and access to a divine spirituality. They know something is broken. They know there's a disconnect between a perceived moral code and how other people are living, and sometimes they realize that there's a disconnect between that moral code and how they are living as well. And so in response to this desire for healing and reconciliation, some may overemphasize the power of technology or of education or of therapy or of relationships and many other things that they believe give them access to complete healing and restoration that they desire. Now, all of those things are good things. Technology, relationships, therapy, they're really good if used as they are intended. But they will not give us the ultimate healing and restoration that we seek. They will not reconcile our lives with God. So we need something more than just the latest gadget or an extra hour with a therapist. We need a faithful priest. Whether we recognize it or not, humans all know this. We are all internally aware that the world is broken and that if we're being honest, we have played a part in breaking it. We know that there is no human authority, that there is no human idea, there is no human government that can bring about the healing and restoration that our world needs. We internally know that only God himself could truly make things right. So we know that we need access to the true and living God. But many of us are afraid to come before God. And that's right. We are all sinners and we have not lived up to God's standard. The Bible says over and over that God is holy and that he demands that we live holy lives. It says that it demands that we keep God's law perfectly and we don't. And this means that we need forgiveness. We are spiritually sick and we need healing. We are morally broken and we need restoration. We seek redemption through various means, which may provide some immediate satisfaction, but no human solution will bring ultimate reconciliation with God for eternity. And eternity is a long time to be wrong. So what will you do? What is the hope whenever you realize that you are guilty that you are shameful, that you are sinful, and that you need a priest to give you access to God? Where will you turn when all else fails? This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Psalm 110 teaches that Jesus is the good and loving king and the faithful and loving priest for all who desire true justice and access to God. And because of this gospel, we can have hope 
and we can find the healing and the reconciliation that we all need. Brothers and sisters, the gospel offers us so much hope. First, it tells us that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. Jesus never sinned. He never mistreated people. He never exploited anyone. He never abused anyone. And because of this, we can trust that he is a good king. He's a perfect king. He's a loving king. We can trust that he can faithfully mediate between God and humans. He's not trying to exploit us. He's not trying to oppress us. Instead, he will show us the mercy that we all need. Second, this beautiful gospel teaches that Jesus died on the cross for our sin and that God raised him from the dead, victorious over sin and death. It teaches that Jesus ascended to heaven to God's throne where he now rules as King of kings and Lord of lords. By defeating sin and death on the cross and in his resurrection, Jesus shows himself to be the most powerful king. There is no power, either spiritual or earthly, that can surpass Jesus' power. He's defeated sin and death. No one else has come close. There is no power that could ever stop the expansion of his rule. By ascending to heaven and ruling from God's throne, Jesus proves that he has divine authority to rule. And because he has this much authority and this much power, we can go and we can proclaim his name to the nations and make disciples among every people and every tongue and every tribe. We can trust that by his power, he will accomplish everything that he has promised. Third, as both fully God and fully human, Jesus shows himself to be the perfect priest whom we need. Since Jesus was fully human, he can sympathize with sinners like us. Since Jesus was fully God, he alone can judge rightly, not according to human judgments, but according to God's character. Since Jesus was fully human, he knows our weaknesses. He knows our limitations. And since Jesus was fully God, he knows the extent of the forgiveness and restoration that we truly need. Jesus gives us the faithful and understanding priest whom we all need. Finally, since Jesus is the perfect judge, according to Psalm 110, we can trust that he will judge rightly. Humans judge according to our standards of power and from our limited perspectives. We may try to do what is right, but we ultimately don't know. Our desires are corrupted. Our perspective is limited. But Jesus, being fully God, judges according to God's standard. And from God's all-knowing, all-seeing perspective. And thus, he will make the right judgments. And we can trust him to do what is right. 
And so that brings me to the end of this morning's message. The question this morning is simply whether or not you know Jesus. Do you know Jesus, who is the perfect king and the faithful priest whom you need and whom you deeply desire? And if you are a Christian this morning, as I know that many of us are, the question is, are you coming to Jesus as the perfect and good king who can do all things? Are you coming to Jesus as the faithful priest who can give you true access to God, to himself? Only Jesus can fulfill our desires for a true and good king. Only Jesus can fulfill our desire for a faithful priest. Only Jesus can bring the true healing and restoration that we need. So won't you today turn from whatever path you've been following and give your life wholly to Jesus Christ, our Lord? Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for your word, for this promise that was made to King David a thousand years before our Lord Jesus Christ came, a promise of a perfect king and a faithful priest whom we need, a promise of a king that is greater than King David, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, God of God, light of light, our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, if there is anyone here today who who has not given their life to Jesus Christ, may today be the day of their salvation. May they submit to a good and loving king. May they turn their hearts to a faithful and understanding priest. And for those of us who are believers, may we be encouraged by this passage to live more faithfully, rejoicing in our king and priest, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.